referring to New York as a town many times, and I thought, you know, I never <laughs> thought of it that way. <laughs> but there's this feeling of, you know, a lot of community that's available and visible and interacting on the cities, on the streets, in the cafes, in the storefronts. There's, a, there's an aliveness, a connectedness, a vitality. In my own personal experience, um, you know, my connection with nature has been really a deep part of my practice. In fact, I would probably say that it has been my main teacher for the last 15 years, which itself is a big story about how that has come to be and why that is and the way that works. But for me, there's something, it's not just that, hmm, like I like nature. It's like it's, it's, it's as close as, as, as my dearest teacher could possibly be in terms of holding and mirroring and showing for me the qualities of my mind and the places where I get confused as well as showing ways of being that are not confused. So to celebrate the earth or to connect practice with tomorrow's Earth Day. You know, it's a, not a trivial thing for me in my life and the way that I've lived. And yet I was trying to think of how can I share my own journey with you tonight in a way that would be useful and meaningful for you. And rather than telling you stories about, you know, how this has been the case for me, I thought what I'd like to do is just, you know, invite each of us to explore the gratitude that we feel for blooming flowers and blooming trees and when we hear the birds singing, when we're in the parks and we see the canopy of the trees, particularly when it starts to get hotter and there's an incredible heat and we want to experience the shade or the coolness. You know, when we're near the river and we can appreciate the, the beauty of the river or the, the, the places in the river where it's nice or safe enough to swim. And so our relationship with nature and the way in which it can be nourishing to us. And one of the things that's been interesting for me just being a short time here in New York is to see the way, you know, places have have little ecosystems in their houses where there's plants and there's flowers and there's a sense of nature that's embedded in our living spaces and how nourishing that is instead of just having walls and floors and carpet and decorations. We've got living things that are around us. It's beautiful. So when we contemplate the nourishment that we get from nature, the joy, the sense of perspective, of connection, of well-being that comes. When we think about the whales or the dolphins in the ocean. I don't know if any of you have been to South Africa and visited Tunisra and Kitty Saro's place but that is a remarkable place to be in close proximity to nature because right on the property that they have on the retreat center that they have, baboons come and you can see elands 
And you can hear these magnificent birds that they are flying right through. And so in a place like that, the presence and the, the vitality of nature is not imagined, it's lived. And the weather there is really incredible. It can change in a very dramatic way very quickly. And so the elements of the wind and the fire and the animals and the territory is right close nearby. And so when I was, I was there on retreat and I was deeply appreciative of the close proximity to the sacred land, to the animals, and the way in which that helped me open up into what was happening in my own mind and see things more clearly and let go of places of grasping and confusion and tightness. So each of us has a journey of looking at how, what is our nature, what is our relationship with nature, and how is it that we experience nature as a place of inspiration, as a source of solace, as a place of creativity, as an opening to a way of play, of relaxing, of sharing, of beauty. You know, how do we experience nature in these different kinds of ways? How do we experience the sound of birds? in terms of the impact that it has on our heart? Or what happens when we see bees in a flower? Or what happens when we hear that there's dolphins that are nearby? You know? Or how many people have gone and seen the whales and been in the presence of these beings that are just unbelievably majestic, just unbelievably powerful and majestic? Or gone on trips and hung out with elephants. I was just with a friend, and she had just recently returned from a trip in Thailand and went and visited elephants and got to a little bit of a sense of what they are like. And, you know, we don't have elephants in New York. <laughs> Maybe in the zoo, but not on the street. <laughs> and the power of a being like that is, is, is um, compelling compelling of our interest, of our attention, and a different way of relating to ourself and the world. Because they're so big, they're so powerful, and because they're so unbelievably intelligent and remarkably sensitive. So we can contemplate the gratitude that we feel for nature as part of celebrating Earth Day. And really think about it. It's, it can be easy to take it for granted. And so it can be really useful to focus on it. And as we're navigating this global situation with climate destabilization, it's also right alongside the gratitude. We have a very often an easy access to grief of the things that we are losing or have lost or are at risk of losing. We are in a, a situation right now where there's you know, mass extinction of species that are happening. I put a little bat house outside my little vihara in what I thought was a perfect place, and nobody's come and lived in it. And you know, I was talking to the neighbor saying, you know, there's no bats that are living in my bat house. 
and he cut out a newspaper clipping that was talking about one of the catastrophes that's happening in the ecosystems is impacting the bats. And I didn't know that. So that we see stress that's happening on many, many different living systems. We see forests that are being clear-cut. We see the weather that's being destabilized. We see crazy storms. We see the water, the oceans are warming up. The whales and the marine life are getting stressed. The, the polar bears are uh, starving because they don't have enough ice to hunt. And to, to open up to the reality of what's going on is, um, it's heartbreaking. It's devastating. And what can happen is, is that for many of us, rather than actually touch the truth of what's going on, we shield ourselves from it because we don't have the capacity to embrace the depth or the enormity or the scope of the kinds of changes that are going on right now. And this movement is something that is an important movement to notice and to learn to watch. Because what the Buddha was talking about when he was talking about the Four Noble Truths is, is, is that the way in which suffering is something that pervades everything. It pervades the nature of the way our bodies exist, the way that we crave, the way that we want, our experience of aging, of sickness. It's part of the journey of life that there is an unsatisfactoriness and a dukkha to it. And in that experience, we can see that one of the primary reactions to that is not wanting to feel it and wanting it to be other ways. But in the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths, the problem of the wanting and the not wanting is also right where we experience the solution right exactly in the wanting things to be different, the not wanting things to be the way they are, is where we can open and allow the wanting and the not wanting to release. Now, in the situation with climate destabilization, we have something that's happening, which is actually something that is ooh, unique. And the uniqueness of it is, is that in addition to the fact that this is the first time in human history that we're navigating something like this, in the Buddha's teachings, the, 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 the release from suffering comes from our internal reaction to what is actually arising, the wanting and the not wanting things to be a certain way. But in our situation, in our contemporary world right now, what we are navigating is, is, is that our own capacity to be peaceful and clear doesn't separate us from the consequences of what's happening in the world around us. So even if we are adept at letting go internally, we are still connected to a worldwide systems that are undergoing massive change. So 
the gratitude that we have for our own natural world can give rise to the capacity to navigate the grief that we experience for what we are in the process of losing or at risk of losing. And together, the beauty, the joy, the, the, the gratitude, the nourishment combined with the risk of what we are facing is part of the reason why that this climate crisis is actually an incredible and very potent opportunity. Because it has been the case that people have been able to slide by on certain kinds of strategies that were not in the best interest of the majority of people. And that has been ways in which we have worked and operated for a very long time, you know, globally, as global people. And we are in a situation right now where as we focus on our own needs to the neglect of the world situation that we're in, we are not moving in the direction towards solutions that are going to be in the best interest of our own survival. So what used to work is no longer a workable, sustainable strategy in terms of me first or me and the people that I care about most as the most important thing that I need to focus on. Because what we're dealing with right now is involving everybody. And the people who are at most at risk, the people who have in the past and in the present have been disenfranchised and marginalized, are often the ones who are the ones who are going to be hit the hardest by the kinds of destabilization of climate and the shortages that come as the pressure starts to tighten. And while all of this can be something that is experienced as more and more and more terrifying, it can also be something that catapults us into a level of engagement and compassion and concern and an opening of the heart and the mind that we haven't yet been able to touch or to realize or to stabilize. Let me talk about it in a slightly different way and see how that, how that impacts. When we look at light, we can see or we can know, I can't see, but I can know from what I've heard from scientific studies that light has two different components to it. And depending on the kind of way in which we're looking, depending on the kinds of quality of light that we see. So light has both particle-like nature and wave-like nature. And both exist, and they exist simultaneously. But depending on the experiment, we'll determine what it is that we see. Now, the same is true as human beings. There is a particle-like nature of us where we exist as individuals with personality characteristics, with history, and a self in relationship to others. And this is true. This is part of what is absolutely true, and this is something that we are navigating all the time. What I like, what I don't like, how I relate to the world, and what is happening around me. 
But there's also a wave-like quality of being human, where in a, instead of feeling ourselves as a separate entity, distinct, we are emergent out of the ocean of awareness. We are connected through awareness to everything. We don't experience ourselves as separate. And when the individual characteristics recede, it recedes back into this great field of awareness, which is not separate or distinct from a field of unconditioned loving kindness. In that space, space. being a wave, there isn't a sense of separateness. There isn't a sense of individuality and unique characteristics. There's a sense of the way in which we are all made of the same stuff, arising out of the same field of awareness and receding back into that same field of awareness. And in that experience of being a wave, there's an interest that's just natural. It isn't concocted or fabricated or derived or even willfully in, put in place. That the benefit of everyone is where there is the most sense of ease and well-being and peace and joy. Because one is not separate and distinct from everyone. And so for me, what I have been experiencing as I navigate these different terrains of looking at the depth to which I feel grateful and gratitude for the way in which nature holds me and allows me to relax and to remember who I am, that it pushes me into the opportunity of letting go of the ego identification and clinging that has me primarily identified with myself in the particle manifestation rather than knowing myself as an aspect of a wave emerging out of a field of awareness and unconditioned love that connects everyone and everything. And so the potency of what we're navigating right alongside the utter terror of what we are navigating is, is that what is needed now is a shift in consciousness from being focused on the particle-like nature of being where I'm interested in myself and the people that I'm most concerned about at no matter what the expense is, to recognizing that these two characteristics exist simultaneously and both have their truth. Now what happens when there's the capacity to know the particle-like nature and the wave-like nature of self and other is that there's great peace. There's great contentment. There's very little confusion. There's very little sense of agitation and pressure 
and fear. Because on one hand, while there's real deep clarity about what is arising in the present moment, there's also deep and profound understanding of where we come from and where we're going. It's like being connected to our true home. Even while we are observing and navigating the challenges that are in front of us. So the Buddha talked about suffering as a really important truth to contemplate because it leads us to the cessation of suffering. And in this climate destabilization, what my own experience with contemplating the suffering of what we're navigating is it does lead to a cessation of suffering, but not in the way that I had experienced before when I was working with the Four Noble Truths in the immediacy of what was arising. It does arise, uh, allow for the cessation of suffering by bringing me to another level of understanding of what we're dealing with here. It helps me feel the connection with everything, with everyone, and the incredible importance to begin to start looking at solutions that are global rather than temporary or temporal. And my mind didn't used to work that way. I live right next to the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs. And the Garden of the Gods is a really is spectacular, beautiful rock formation of rocks that are 160 million years old. But more importantly, or more meaningfully to me than their beauty is the, their power. You know, for me, it's a power spot. And when I go there, my mind and my body relaxes and I can, uh, I, I, I experience um, these different qualities of particle-like and wave-like nature much more easy. So it's like, you know, kind of beam me up, Scotty. You know, I go there and it doesn't take very long and I just drop into these spaces. And because it's such a powerful place for practice, I'm, I go there all the time. So, you know, we didn't have the brutal winter that you had, but we did have some, some winter, you know. February was the coldest winter. The first half of February was the coldest February on record, and the second half of February was the warmest February on record. And one morning I woke up and the temperature was reading minus 20, and the wind chill factor was minus 35. And, you know, my main transportation is bicycle. And for about three weeks, the whole city was like a skating rink. You know, it was a just, there's just no way I was going to get on a bicycle in conditions like that. But I didn't go out when it was minus 35 with wind chill factor, but I went out when it was minus 15. And I love it outside. And gratefully, I've got enough gear so that I can stay warm even when it's really super cold like that. And, you know, one of the things that I, I love about being outside is just to see the incredible intelligence of nature. 
So one day it had snowed and it was a particular snow. It was a freezing fog. And so there were crystals that were formed on everything like this. Everything was like a, a, pa a palace of crystals. And I went out to walk through the garden. And so you can just imagine all of the leaves and all of the, 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 the pine trees had these, um, they were clusters of crystals on them. And the rocks were also covered with crystals. And where the rocks shone through, you had the white of the crystals, the red of the rocks, the blue of the sky. It, it's just very stark and very, very beautiful. And the day that I went out, the sun started to shine. And what happened when the sun shines through this palace of crystals is, is that it becomes then a palace of light. So this spectacular beauty was transforming with the light and illuminating this landscape that looked like just crystal, a crystal palace of diamonds that were just shimmering all over the place. And one of the things that is hard in our ordinary consciousness to see is the way sometimes nature is a reflection of deeper realities. And so when we are in that wave-like experience, one of the things that we can notice or that can be noticed is the sense that that awareness or the experience of emptiness that has no intrinsic reality or separate identity is the core. And radiating out from the core is this suffusion into the world. And the world is radiating back into the core. So there's this torus, this like donut-like shape, hollow thing that is moving out into the world where the world is then funneling back into the center. And in that day where the lights were shining the way they were with the crystals, it was a clear physical manifestation of that principle. That in that space of emptiness, the world is informing it but it's the emptiness that is the place that is suffusing the world. We are completely interdependent and interconnected. And most of the time, our experience is of, of being a particle, of being separate and independent, not seeing our connection, not seeing the radiance, not seeing the luminosity, not feeling the intrinsic non-self that is present. And so as a particle, the, the qualities that we're navigating is our emotional response to what is arising. Whether I like it, whether I don't like it, whether it affirms my sense of who I am, whether it makes me scared or happy, whether it makes me feel welcome or not. But that basic quality of connection is not something that we necessarily can feel or tune into. And yet, when the perspective is shifted, 
Just like when the light moves through all of those crystals and the whole world is shimmering, the light is everywhere. It's not something that we need to go looking for. And so the situation that we're in right now, because of the intensity of it, it is allowing us to experience and to see and to have a depth in our practice that before wasn't so easy to access. Somebody um, gifted me the book, uh, Naomi Klein's book, uh, called This Changes Everything. Have you heard of it? It's, it's an awesome book because uh, the research that she has done is extremely extensive in terms of looking at the situation that we're in and the reason why we're here and navigating both the complexity of it with unbelievable detail as well as talking about what we need to focus on right now. And, you know, her understanding is, is that this sol problem that we're navigating is not going to be solved by keeping our horizons limited to what's in our own best interest. We need to start looking at solutions that start helping uh, on a global perspective. And her thinking is clear. Her articulation is exquisite, and I was very, very impressed with her work. That ability to think globally is not something that I have been trained to do. You know, as a, as a contemplative monastic, my, the domain that I'm most familiar with is the interior reflective domain of my experience and how to help people navigate that. But when I read her book and when I see what's happening around me and when I sit with the, uh, with the experience of, of, of these things, then I am called, I feel, I feel moved to seeing what is it that I can do? How is it that I can participate? What is it that's going to be useful in service of what we are navigating right now? And that question has taken me into exploring alternatives that I never would have thought of before. And one of the things that I've engaged with as a, as a monastic who originally ordained in the forest tradition, Ajahn Chah forest tradition, in the monasteries that we lived in, we never had vegetable gardens. And part of the reason for that is because as monastics, it's a really important value that we live in an interdependent relationship with the lay community. That for us, it's important that we make a, a deliberate effort not to be depend, independent Okay, this completely cuts across our North American value system, you know, where everyone is absolutely interested in becoming independent and not having to rely on everyone. But the purpose of the Buddha's teaching and his purpose of creating monastic rules that prohibit monks and nuns from digging the earth and growing their own vegetables and or cutting their own vegetables and storing food 
is to ensure that we have to have regular contact with the lay community. Because when people are living a contemplative life, then there is a positive value when there's contact with people who are living in the world, in a worldly life, that we rub up against each other. We have contact with each other. So I'm aware of this value, and I am appreciative of it, and very respectful of it, and yet, I live in a place, it's a modest place, it's about 400 square feet, that's the whole place. And then I live on four empty lots. And even though I live 10 minutes walk from the Garden of the Gods, I live in a city. And so for me, I thought, well, maybe what I can do is have a community vegetable garden that I will host, and then if I get fed from it, it will be because people will offer to me from the garden. I won't harvest myself. So I thought, okay, you know, that would be a great idea, but how is it that I'm going to, you know, how, how can I do this? You know, how is this going to be possible? So I thought, well, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'll just try. So uh, I, was, I was, and so things have just started to show up. So I had this idea that having some mulch would be useful, and then a 10 cubic yards of mulch was offered to me, which is a lot of mulch. So I've been making a vegetable garden, and then somebody has offered to, uh, to connect me with a group of people who are helping city people develop vegetable gardens. So out of this, like, not having a clue idea of what can I do that will be helpful, to having this idea, oh, a vegetable garden might be a good way to move into a way where the city or in the neighborhood is doing something that is collaborative, that supports working together and finding a, a simple solution towards bringing a little bit more uh, produce, sustainability into an area, it seemed like, a, like a something that would be a worthwhile experiment. But the process of navigating this was navigating a lot of uncertainty. I didn't know the answer when I started. I had an inspiration. I had a few ideas. I did a little bit of research. And then I started asking or talking to people or inquiring. And they had more connections. And then spontaneous things would just arrive, which I didn't, I didn't will. They just happened. And so what this has shown me is, is that there can be uh, an aspiration that can take a while to ferment in a cauldron of uncertainty before it ripens into something that can manifest as a concrete idea or as a way of moving forward. The other thing that has happened recently, which I'm also really, really appreciative of, is that in Colorado Springs is a coal power plant, and I think there's 18 coal trains that come every day to that power plant. And that power plant is the only power plant in Colorado, the entire state, that does not yet have a termination date connected to it. And for reasons which I've never been really entirely sure, Colorado Springs has a number of different Buddhist groups, 
and they're very rarely connect with each other. You know, they meet in different places, they have different events, and there's not a lot of overlap. But a couple of people from a couple of different groups decided that they wanted to have a climate vigil looking at the power plant just to contemplate together what it would be like to bring climate consciousness into our lives. And so since November, this group has been meeting every month. And it's a group of people who are coming together from different groups with a very simple idea of bearing witness and reflecting inwardly and supporting each other to find ways of moving more towards climate stability. And this small little group and this seemingly insignificant uh, presence has generated uh, the potency and the creativity for many different things. And so for me, again, there's something quite beautiful about watching there is a way in which we can start with something that has very humble beginnings. There were only 10 or 15 people that met initially. And yet that can be the seed for something that's very powerful that can emerge, both in terms of nourishing our own practice, as well as creating positive and concrete solutions towards what we need to navigate. It's been deeply inspiring. And I think one of the things that is true about the vegetable garden, about the climate watch, about the movement towards using this challenging situation to potentize our practice is the recognition that we're connected in this together and understanding the way in which we awaken together. That our relationships with each other, our friendships with each other, the way in which we meet each other and connect with each other is part of our awakening as individual people and in navigating this challenging situation. So this is all that comes to me to share as reflection right now. And what I'd like to do is change the context and open it up for conversation, for discussion, for comments, for more engagement. What gets stirred up in you when you hear this? What are your questions? Yes.
well, this is this is not this is not a faith thing. This is this is a fantasy. However, when you brought it back to your own individual effort to start a community garden, and you described how somebody brought a very large amount of mulch, and how things start to piece together, and then you described how people sat in front of the manufacturer's coal, manufacturer's gas plant, and uh, um, you know, started off with a small group of people. And then I, I'm presuming that that has grown since then, and perhaps has led to other things. So that, that, it, that does make a lot of sense to me. And, and I felt like, well, my initial reaction was wrong. Thank you. There's a question behind you. I was what as you were speaking. <coughs> I had read a book a couple of years ago called In the Absence of Faith by a guy named Jerry Landers. He was born in about 1940 in Avenue in the Bronx. His father made some money in the store and he moved out to the country to Yonkers. So he grew up out in Thank you. 
So, you know, one of the principal components of Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, is, is that the, the capitalistic system that we're in the middle of is absolutely in uh, opposition to a sustainable planet. And so, you know, part of the reason why the situation is as, as intense as it is is because so much needs to change. It's not like we can put a Band-Aid on anything right now in terms of and see if we, if we put a Band-Aid on it that we're going to be able to halt the course of direction that we're at. And so she argues very um, effectively the depth of the problem as well as the, uh, the magnitude of the kind of changes that we need to start looking at. And this, this is both um, uh, uh, extremely challenging to wrap one's mind around, as well as unbelievably exhilarating to think that the brokenness of the situation that we're navigating now in terms of the disparity and the inequities and the lack of justice in so many different areas can be renegotiated when we are looking at it from a different perspective. So I'm not a strategist. That's not my skill. And you know, in terms of the, the, the layers of research and the details of the arguments that she put forward, they seemed extremely sound to me. She's not the only one thinking in this way. But what does really grab my attention is the is the the level of suffering that we are facing and the potential for change positive that we can we can f move this towards and yet because it's 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 so scary you know it's difficult to 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 navigate without the 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 terror or the fear or the apprehension or being frozen or uncertain or not knowing what we need to do and yet these small things that then gravitate energy with each other then pull together an intelligence where the intelligence of the larger group has finds ways of moving forward it's beautiful you know i'm I'm not a, a scholar of the Old Testament, but I do know that the forest tradition has existed since before the time of the Buddha, and in that, the relationship with nature has always been an incredibly important part of a, a deep contemplative life because of the way in which it can mirror the mind and can show us the way things are changing and can illuminate the places where we are getting attached and aversive. There's a question over here. Um, awareness <clears throat> is the uh, cool observing quality that is inclusive of everything. It's not emotional. It doesn't have an emotional, uh, like, 
tone or quality to it. It's, it's like the space that's here in this room. You know, it doesn't have a, an emotional quality to it other than the one that we would put onto it. It's neutral. Unconditional love is inclusive. It's not uh, exclusive. It, 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 it invites and welcomes everything. But there is a quality of warmth and connectedness in it. It's not neutral. It's, it has a warmth to it. Both of these are connected by the fact that they are both uh, inclusive, they're not exclusive, they welcome whatever is present, there isn't anything about either that is judgmental. One is m observing, the other is connecting. That's where they have slight differences. But it was very interesting for me when I was listening to Jack Engler talk about Deepama and his experience with her and she was saying how for her, mindfulness and love were two sides of the same thing. And when I heard her say that, there was this big kind of relaxation and release because that's what I had intuited, but I couldn't, I didn't trust myself enough to feel that that was okay. But for her, because she was such an exemplary and realized being, when it came out of her mouth, then it had a lot more impact on me. Does that answer your question? Yeah, good. Are there other questions? There's one up front here. Yeah. Well, I, certainly there has been lots of different changes that have happened over, um, you know, the time since the Earth has formed. That's definitely the case. And, you know, weather patterns have definitely changed. That's also definitely true. But the situation that we're in is the first time that the change has happened because of human action. So our use and burning of fossil fuels has contributed to the concentration of the CO2 levels and that is directly connected to fossil fuel burning. It's not something that is, that is, not, that is, that is separate from that. So the situation that we're navigating right now, it's the first time where the weather patterns that we are dealing with have been so drastically impacted by our own actions. It doesn't mean that they're separate or distinct from nature, but it does mean that they are connected to what it is that we've done. And there are some people who refuse to accept that. They don't want to know about that. And it's a very interesting exploration as to why that is so hard for some people to accept. But th that exploration of the denial of that process is 
uh, one of the things that Naomi Klein does a beautiful job in describing in terms of why for some that is such a hard thing to actually wrap one's mind around and accept. What is it? Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. Okay. Beautiful nature sanctuary. Um, so I was there and I moved here from the West Coast last October and it was windy and um, for the first time since October I heard the sound of um, wind blowing through many um, immigrants. So I think the question has to do with how is it to practice with nature? You know, how do you actually use it to allow your attention to go into a place of depth rather than to stay in terms of sensual pleasure and uh, enjoyment and grasping and craving? So, you know, even if we're, we're grasping and craving at the sound of the wind or at the birds, or it's still grasping and it's still craving. And it's, a, it's an important question because certainly we bring all of those things with us wherever we go. But I notice certainly it has to do with the amount of time. So, you know, when we're, when we're nature starved, just like when we're food starved or when we're affection starved or when we're any kind of starved, when we first have contact with it, you know, usually our relationship with it is not moderate. We're kind of gulping, grasping, swallowing, you know, we're, it's, we're hungry. And so there isn't a lot of mindfulness in our way of connecting, yeah? Then when we are not starving, then there's a little bit more mindfulness in the way that we're relating. So I, I get nature starved, you know, and when I, when I go back into the garden after I've been on a teaching trip and I've been traveling a lot or in cities or a lot and I haven't had a lot of contact with nature or wilderness or all the rest of that, you know, it, it takes a little while for my nervous system to unravel and unwind until I can actually relax into those deep places that I can go when that's more familiar to me. So part of it is just a sense of a 
patience and appreciation for a process that's necessary to unfold. For me, where I'm at, you know, I have easy access where I live, and so I go every day. And one day a week, I spend the whole day. And I noticed that there are different things. Like when I was out with the lights, with the with the crystals, I was goggle-eyed. You know, that you know that sense of like I can't get enough in. Like this is so unbelievably beautiful. I I don't know how it's. There's this. There was definitely craving. There was the sense of this is so spectacular. I I I want to gobble it up. You know. And then it took a little while of just noticing the craving and the suffering of that craving to relax it, to, to soften around it, to just let it in without holding on, yeah? So whenever we're navigating craving, no matter what it is, it's a practice in and of itself, you know? Of, of being with that quality of desire, noticing it, noticing the impact that it has on our body, noticing what it does to the texture of our mind and to the quality of our breath, seeing the stress that's present just in that. And then the quality or the nature of, of dukkha is, is that when we recognize it, it, it's, it supports letting go. It's like it doesn't take a big conversation to have a burning coal <coughs> because it hurts too much. It's really hot. But when we think that somehow the burning coal is connected to pleasing us, then we get all of these complicated loops where it's hard to recognize or holding on is actually hurting. For me, part of practicing with nature is spending a lot of time and watching the different ways in which you know things become habitual or familiar or fresh or new and letting that shift my system. But one of the ways in which that's so um, powerful is by the way in which I relax. Because for whatever reason, whether it's because I'm energetically sensitive or whatever, I don't know, probably that's it. You know, when I, when I have contact with those rocks, my body relaxes so quickly that I perceive the rocks as being soft and embracing, okay? So it isn't about grasping hold of them, it's about connecting with something that allows me to relax deeply. And that deep and powerful relaxation is, the, is, is a really important stepping stone in, in clear seeing and depth. Now, for me, it's not the visual that helps me relax, it's the physical that helps me relax. So for me, when I put my body in maximum contact with the rocks, that's when I relax the most. So, you know, the same is true when I'm walking around and it's somehow spectacularly beautiful that day that's different. If I close my eyes and shift the visual and tune into the energetic, then my ability to navigate the grasping changes because of the sense door that I'm operating through. Does that help? Yeah. So, you know, I'm visually activated a lot more than I am kinesthetically. And so when I just work with it from the level that actually is easier for me to work, then it helps me relax and open up to the, what is then the depth and then allows me to see clearly. And then it all unfolds from there.
There's a question in the back. Well, you know, for me, the garden is, it's like a home place for me, but it's also like family, you know? So when I'm connected to those rocks, it's like there's a tenderness I feel. I feel such gratitude. And so, you know, after I've been spending a little bit of time in a place, I, I, I thank them. I express my appreciation. I acknowledge that I've just been here, you know? So rather than walking through it, it's like I'm, I'm relating as if they're living beings. And when I'm relating as if there's living beings, there's no taking for granted. There's a really stopping and a connecting and a noticing and, and, and sensing. And I feel enlivened by the relatedness and by the uh, appreciation. And so, w we, when we, as we slow down and uh, recognize that we're in relationship with everything, that relationship awakens in us the ability to navigate all of these different things in a different way. You know? It's like to wake up and see, uh, to see your most beloved as if for the first time. You know, I look at these rocks, every time I see them, it's as if for the first time, you know. And it, it, it's not for granted. And so part of the relationship with nature is to slow down and to learn how to live in relationship. And most of the time, we're not living in relationship. We're moving through something. We are an entity, and there's a bunch of its and thems out there that we are passing through. We're not living in relationship with them. It shifts when we do.
would like to close with a guided meditation. Is that okay? Yeah? And, and then we can have announcements afterwards. So just finding a place of sitting so that you feel relaxed and comfortable and your back is upright. And just tuning once again into our physical body sitting here. And noticing if there's any residue or excitement or agitation or interest. And whatever is present, welcoming it. Allowing it to be here. And now bringing attention to one's own aspiration to live without pain, without fear. To live in a way where there's care and kindness and harmlessness as the basis of one's actions. And just noticing that intention, that aspiration, that wish. Now we can use imagination and imagine that as we breathe out, there are bubbles coming out of our mouth. And each of these bubbles is suffused with this warmth of care, of kindness, of a wish for non-harm for ourselves and for others. You can also imagine Ribbons coming out of our mouth, suffused with the same intention. So as we breathe out, we can see that the room is filling up with these bubbles and these ribbons, suffused with the warmth of everyone's heart, with their intentions, with their kindness, with their wish for non-harm. And as we breathe out, others breathe in, and they take in the air that we have breathed out. And in the air that we have breathed out, they also get a little bit of the warmth, of the care, of the kindness, of the intention of non-harm that has suffused the air that we have breathed out. And as others in this room breathe out, we breathe in. And we breathe in the air that has touched their heart. And as the bubbles and the streams fill up the room, they leak out through the windows and down the hallway and sneak into the elevator and go into the rest of the building and out onto the street.
and the breath that we have breathed out, the trees and the flowers breathe in. And what the trees and the plants and the flowers breathe out, the people breathe in. And what the trees and the people breathe out, the animals breathe in, the dogs and the cats and the birds and the insects. And in the oceans, there's a relationship between the air and the oceans. And so as we breathe out and as the animals breathe out and as the animals breathe out, the whole atmosphere is filled with these ribbons and these bubbles. And the water absorbs a little bit of it. And the water gives off air. So the ribbons and the bubbles start soaking into the oceans. And the fish breathe it in and breathe out. So after a while of everyone breathing in and breathing out these ribbons and these bubbles, there's a whole web that's connected, touched by our heart, touched by our intention, touched by our aspiration, touched by each other's aspiration to live with kindness. live in a way that is non-harming. To live in a way where life is sustainable. For as many as possible. Thank you, Sinai. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.